Uh, will you pray with me one more time? Father God, we just want to come before you before we, we dive into your word and pray that you illuminate it for us, that you allow it to work on us. Uh, the words that we read today aren't words just written thousands and thousands of years ago, but words that are alive because your spirit's in them. Amen. All right. So we, uh, in 2021, we worked our way through the book of Matthew slowly, kind of looking at all of the different stories of Jesus. Uh, and in 2020, I'm sorry, 2022, we did that. It's 2023. Uh, in 2023, uh, we have chosen to work through the book of Genesis. Uh, it's the, the beginning uh, of the story of God and his, in the, in his interaction with humanity. I hope that you've enjoyed the first two weeks. We're on week three uh, and have made it to Genesis 2. Uh, we talked about kind of why we're going through Genesis. We've, we put an emphasis on discipleship last year, so the stories of Jesus make a lot of sense then, right? We should know who he is if we're going to try to mirror our life after his. But then why go to Genesis after that? If you're here with us for the first week, we said that's because it's because that's where Jesus starts. When he starts to tell his story, he goes all the way back to the beginning, to, the, to Genesis. And so we, we, we had said that where we start the story matters, where we begin to tell the story matters. And because if we, if we choose to start it at Genesis 3, at the fall, uh, that, that shapes the way that we understand ourselves. It shapes the, under, the way that we understand who God is um, and, and, and how he interacts with us. So where we start the story matters. Even where we start Genesis matters, we saw. Last week, we talked about how we read the story matters. Um, that, that, it, that it matters that we read the stories in the, in the way that they were trying to communicate with us. We looked at Genesis 1, and, and I'll, I'll give the same disclaimer I gave last week, this week, in case you weren't here. We looked at Genesis 1 to see how many different layers and, and things that were in that. Uh, at the same time, we realize that we can get caught up in things that we ought not, right? So if, you can't, if you're coming to the Genesis series to, to answer some questions like whether the earth was created in seven days or over the course of billions of years, we didn't answer that last week, and we won't through this series. Uh, that's, not what we, that's not what we're going to choose to focus on in the midst of all of this. Uh, but what we did see is that in Genesis 1, we see that there are a number of things communicated throughout the whole story. We saw that it's a poem in which the first three days create space and the second three days fill space. We talked about how the pattern of seven repeats 20-some times, well, somewhere between 12 and 20, that's debatable. But either way, a lot of times through, through the course of Genesis 1 expressing a totally different kind of point than how the world was created, but rather that everything was completely completed by the creator completely. Because seven represents a completeness. So we talked about where we start the story matters. We talked about how we read the story matters. And this week we're going to continue in the story of Genesis 1 by talking about how we view God matters. And so we're going to do that by looking today at Genesis 2. Now, I want to just remind everybody, last week we gave you three kind of tools to use while, while we're reading through the different scripture. Three things to kind of ask yourself as you look at different parts of Genesis or really any part of the Bible. Uh, Chuck threw them up on the screen for us. Whenever you're starting to read a story, the first question you ask is, what kind of story am I reading? We realize the Bible is filled with poetry. It's filled with narrative, like this is the, how things happen. It's filled with prophecy. It's filled with uh, a whole bunch of different genres. And so we ask, the first question we ask ourselves is, what kind of story am I reading? The next thing we ask ourselves is, where's the elephant in the room? What's the strange thing that exists in this particular passage? Last week we saw that when we looked at the fact that light and dark are created in day one and the sun and the moon aren't created until day four. Well, that's weird, right? How do we do with that? 
And then finally, we talked about what are the patterns? What are some of the things that are, that are organized in certain ways to help us understand maybe one of those two questions above or maybe something different altogether? And so I just want to remind you of those because we'll need those again today as we look at Genesis 2. So if you're following along, let's pick up the story in Genesis 2, which says this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his, the work that he had done and restored on the seventh, and rested, I'm sorry, on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of heaven and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Let's stop there just for now. We'll continue on in a little bit. But I hope that as we just read that first section there, a few of those alarms that we talked about last week were going off in your head first. First, if you're reading in the NIV, you notice something just about how, the, how it's written. So if you, if you have a Bible, an actual physical Bible, you, you notice when you read Genesis 1, it's organized a certain way, isn't it? Right? It's or, organized like poetry. Right? The lines are separated differently. But when you read Genesis 2, it shifts, doesn't it? It's actually written in a totally different kind of tone. So that it says something right off the bat. It says that the, those now... The how the English translators wrote it down is an interpretation, that's fine, but they, it's saying they interpreted some things differently, so that gives us a clue. Second, hopefully you were able to notice that there are elephants all over the place. Where are the elephants? Where are the strange things in this story? And it, right away at the beginning of Genesis 2, we're, it's filled with them. We see in Genesis 2.1, and we talked about it last week, that the heavens and the earth were finished. It's the completion of the creation story. Day one through six are in Genesis one, and then at the beginning of Genesis two, it says, thus completed the creation of the heavens and the earth. But then we move on to Genesis two, four, and what do we get? We get another account of creation, right? Which is strange. Why would they do that? And then we have verse 5, where it says there was no bush of the field that we yet in the land. But if we look, think back to Genesis 1, that's also strange, right? Because in the creation story of Genesis 1, if we go by the order of Genesis 1, plants and things that were on the earth were created which day? Does anybody know? Five? No. Three. Somebody got it. I don't know who it was. Get harbor points. It's 50 of them. They're valuable keep them. It's created day three. Humans come day six. So it doesn't make sense that there was no shrub or bush on the land because that should have been done in day three, but we're, in, but we're creating man now, which was on day six. What do we do with that, right? Those two accounts are tricky. It actually, it, for some people, it's so troubling that, that they, they actually would, there's a theory, and I don't believe it, but there's a theory that there were two creation stories. Anybody ever heard of Lilith? See how deep the conspiracy theory goes. Hey, we got some. Some of you know. If you don't know, YouTube's dangerous, but it's there. Um, and so that when we read Genesis 2, these are the kind of questions we're, we're asking, right? Why are these strange things here? How, how, do we, how do we wrestle with these things? What is Genesis 2 trying to communicate? Now, 
there are a lot of things that we could talk about in Genesis 2. And, and I do want to make this disclaimer too. I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. Uh, as we worked through Matthew, we were able to tackle more of the individual words inside of Matthew than we're going to be able to do with Genesis. Genesis is a bigger book. And unfortunately, we're going to skip over more sections than we did with Matthew. And I'm sorry about that. Uh, let's grab coffee. We can talk about ones if there are really some things that you are still wrestling with. Um, but there are a lot of things that Genesis 2 is try, trying to communicate, but I want to focus this morning on just two of them, just two different things um, that, that as I was wrestling with this week kind of popped out to me, and I think one of them is absolutely amazing, and the other ones are pretty good too, so I'll share both of them. Um, but let's wrestle with those things. First, let's wrestle with the repeat of the creation story. Right, Genesis 1 lays out the creation for us, but then Genesis 2 repeat, repeats the creation of man in detail. And so our first question has to be, why? Why is that the case? What I would argue that Genesis 2 is making a different point than Genesis 1 is. Last week, we looked at Genesis 1, and it, which is a depiction of God uh, being immensely big and powerful, right? He literally creating the entire cosmos. It's a cosmic view of God in which just a spoken word creates everything that we know to be in existence, God, in that case, is so unfathomably large and powerful that it's hard to wrap our minds around that. And actually, many of the early Christian fathers would argue that we are intended to not be able to wrap our minds around that. That the scope of Genesis 1 is so large because someone like Absalom of Canterbury, would, or not Canterbury, Absalom of Hippo, would say that... Um, uh, that, that if we could wrap our minds around God, he'd be too small for us. And so one of the things that Genesis 1 expresses is how cosmically large God is. We had already mentioned the, the, the number of repeating sevens in Genesis 1 that God completely completed to completely com create everything. We talked about the stars and the suns and the moon being just nothing compared to God, right? We talked about the first readers of Genesis 1 would have been ex-slaves from Egypt, and so, so in that story, they don't even name the sun. They call it the greater light. And they don't name the moon the lesser light because they're saying about the Egyptian god Ra, hmm, he's nothing. He's a created thing in the midst of this whole thing. So in Genesis 1, we're, we're, is aiming to communicate that massive cosmic view of God. God is intensely powerful. He's big, he's strong, and he's transcendent. So then what is Genesis 2 trying to communicate? Now I wonder, did anyone catch the difference in be how, between how Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 name God? That would have been a good catch if someone did. Did someone notice the difference? In Genesis 1, it, just, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word there is the word Elohim. Uh, it's a generic Hebrew word for God, right? So Bra would be an Elohim, God the the God, creator God would also be Elohim. Elohim is a generic uh, word for God in, in Scripture. Uh, and that's the word that we're, that's used in Genesis 1. That in the beginning, Elohim created the, the, the heavens and the earth. But when you shift to Genesis 2, you'll notice something a little bit different. You can see it right there at the top of the slide that we have up there. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In Genesis 1, the word Lord's not there. In Genesis 2, it is. Uh, anytime in your Bible, by the way, you see the, uh, the four-letter capitalized Lord, um, that, that's actually signifying something to you. If you didn't know it, you'll learn a little trivia today. Um, in, uh, the, 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 God is named in Exodus. He names himself, and he names himself Yahweh. 
if you've heard that before. Um, in both Hebrew scripture and in our English translations, in order to not take the name of God in vain, um, Hebrews would, if you were Hebrew, you would say the word Adonai. Uh, if you are um, American or English speaking, you would say Lord, capital L-O-R-D. So anytime you see those capital four letters in scripture, it's a, it's a sub-in for Yahweh, the name Yahweh. That matters to us in this particular story. In Genesis 1, we have Elohim who creates. In Genesis 2, we have Yahweh Elohim. We have both of them, which is interesting. And there's a reason for it. In Genesis 1, we are talking about the big cosmic view of God. Too big for us even to wrap our minds around at all. He's supposed to be too big. He's supposed to be transcendent. He's supposed to be large and powerful. In Genesis 2, by even adding Yahweh in, we shrink that scope. And he becomes personal and close. There's a difference between knowing someone's general category. Like I can say I know the, who the president is, I guess. I just, right? And it's another thing to say I know his name and he knows me, right? It's one thing to say I know God, who God is. It's another thing to say I know what his name is. Now hold on to that because, the language, because there's more in the language here as well. In Genesis 2.4, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth in which they were created. That's in Genesis 4, which is the completion of the first creation story. But in 7, we move into a different kind of word. It says that then, then the Lord God, then Yahweh God, formed man. In Genesis 1, God creates man. In Genesis 2, he forms man. All throughout Genesis 1, God baras, which is the Hebrew word for to create, right? Bara. And then in verse 7, we get a different word, which is yatzer, which is the idea of forming or squeezing or shaping. It's actually a, a, a term often used around pottery, right? So you can imagine, uh, like if you have a pottery wheel, does anybody do pottery here? Nobody does. Not surprising. But... Right? But, so I don't either. So that means I can be really wrong and none of you will know. It's perfect. From what I've seen on YouTube, because that's the best I can do with pottery, right? You put it on the wheel and you spin it and you start to shape it. And you, have, you do have to do some squeezing and molding. And you have to be what? Really tender and gentle, right? So if you accidentally poke a finger in, the whole thing collapses and doesn't work. It requires a bit of artistry, a bit of intimacy, a bit of, a bit of attention to it. In Genesis 1, we create, we just make, we speak, and it is. In Genesis 2, we have this imagery of being shaped and formed like someone shapes a pot. It's an imagery that carries through through the rest of Scripture, too. We see it in Isaiah, Isaiah 43.1, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Or in Isaiah 44, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made or created all things, actually that made is Barah there again, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. We have this difference between the creator God and this large, big space and the forming God who forms man. Genesis 1, God is big and creates all things. Genesis 2, that same God comes close. Instead of Yahweh, we have, or instead of Elohim, we have Yahweh Elohim. In Genesis 1, God creates everything. In Genesis 2, God forms a man. 
what we see here is that Genesis 2 is, is, is actually communicating a completely different aspect of God. God is big, transcendent, and powerful, but he is also intentional, gentle, and close. One and two communicate different things in the midst of those things. Where we start the story matters. In the first two chapters of the Bible, we're shown two aspects of God right away, both of which are critically important to how we read the rest of the Bible, and both of which we can get wrong so easily. What do I mean by that? So I've noticed over the years that people tend to be drawn to either Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. Now, they probably wouldn't express it that way, but maybe a better way to say it is people are drawn into a Genesis 1 or Genesis 2 understanding of who God is. Let me see if I can make that a little bit more clear. Some of you have an easier time thinking of God as big and powerful and up, right? Like the image of God when you conjure it in your head is of the big bearded guy up in the clouds. Anybody with me on that one? You see some nods, okay, right? You know what I mean. You, you know the picture of Adam reaching out the finger and the bearded God. Like that's you, that's for you. Like that's, that's when you got right there. Right, God is the gatekeeper of heaven and you're hoping to be on his good side someday, Right? Sometimes, some of you have an easier, under, easier time with this understanding of God, right? You're Genesis 1 people. Now, don't get me wrong. Genesis 1 is communicating, communicating God's power. It's meaning to, right? We, we already said that, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's good. But if we, take, if, if, if we only see God that way, as transcendent, as otherly, as big and powerful and unaccessible, it opens us up to some serious misunderstandings about who he is. I would actually argue it's one of the critical flaws in Islam. Now, I'm not trying to, to, to trash the whole thing here. I actually wish that we could gather a better transcendent understanding of who God is, as some Muslims have. But they view God as transcendent, unaccessible, out there, right? If we, if we only understand God through the Genesis 1 lens, it opens us up to that kind of misunderstanding. God becomes detached from reality from us. He's inaccessible. He's judgmental. He's, he's a cold force looking to punish or to test or condemn. And maybe some of you have lived your faith life in that space in which God is just the cosmic judge. That you just got to be good enough so he doesn't zap you. Or that you can just sneak your way into heaven someday. It's easy if we only have a Genesis 1 view to start viewing Yahweh God as Zeus. We've said that a number of times around here. The idea of the cosmic judge is not one the Bible gives us. It's one that Greek mythology gives us. In which the gods are fickle and angry and if you cross them they'll kill you. Or condemn you or damn you. Some of you have an easier time relating to Genesis 1. There are others of you who have an easier time relating to Jesus uh, um, as my best friend, right? Jesus is my best friend. Anybody ever lived in that movement, right? Uh, he's loving, he's kind, he's close, he's soft. And so he's my best friend, right? Some of you are nodding out there too. You've, you've lived that experience as well. If that's your understanding of who God is, you're probably more Genesis 2 people, and as we've seen in the first few verses of Genesis 2, that is what Genesis 2 is communicating. And as you move through the story, you actually get to see more aspects of God in that way. As someone who cares about you intimately, who shapes you like a, pot like a potter has to shape pottery, 
who forms you rather than just creates, who's intentional, who's thoughtful, who's close. But like being only Genesis 1 people, being only Genesis 2 people has issues as well. If we only have a Genesis 2 view of God, if we're not careful, he becomes small. He becomes weak. We take away his ability to correct or make judgments about what is right or wrong. We take away his ability to execute justice. And I don't mean, I don't mean angry, vengeful condemnation. I mean justice, actual justice. If we take only Genesis 2, God becomes just a friend and nothing more. And maybe some of you can relate to that too. There are a number of people who I've met with who are disillusioned because it's like, why would I even follow this? Because there's nothing here. It's all, it's all so soft. It's all so surface level. It's all so meaningless. Where we start the story matters. And the Bible starts with both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. An understanding, that God, that an understanding of God being both powerful and intimate. Both of being equally important in the beginning of this story. We fear God because he's bigger than we are. He's more powerful than I am and he knows more than I do. A healthy, reverent fear of God. Now, fear is not terror. They're different things. Sometimes we, we communicate them that way. It's an understanding that the, that the person I serve knows more and is bigger and more powerful than I am. And sometimes we can lose that reverence towards God. Appropriate, appropriate fear or reverence towards God matters. But we also draw close, close to God, like we sang this morning, because the Bible says he wants to be near us, that he wants to walk with us in that way. When we understand both of those things together, we begin to understand why one of the most common used metaphors for God in the Bible is one, is one of God as Father. If you have small children on, at home, you start to understand how that all works together, don't you? To a five-year-old, his or her father is both immensely powerful compared to them, right? Now, in my case, my dad was six th- is, is still 6'3", and so as a little kid, he seemed incredibly powerful, right? Actually, one of my, one of my most, most ingrained memories, which I'm sad when I brought this up to my dad a couple years ago, he doesn't remember it, which is, makes sense. I was little, and, but there was, <laughs> I wasn't going to tell the story, but now I will because it's kind of funny. So I have, a, I have two younger brothers, and we, we had a rule in our house. We weren't supposed to fight with each other, right? But we would because we were brothers. I think that's kind of what you're supposed to do. We actually would build WWE wrestling rings sometimes. It was WWF then, so it was okay. And uh, we'd wrestle in that space. But there was one particular Saturday morning where we were fighting in the basement, and my dad had come down and told us to knock it off. He went back upstairs. Uh, we didn't. Um, and so he came down a second time, told us to knock it off. We didn't again. Um, and I still remember we're in the basement, and, my, and the living room was right above us, and I could hear his feet go, right? Like he was on the couch, and you could hear them both go down. And like that, that terror comes in you. And maybe you've lived that before where you're like, oh, oh, I think we're in trouble. <laughs> and you could hear him because normally we didn't get two warnings. So the third one was going to be bad. Uh, he stomps down and, and we actually hid. So there was a, like I was behind the couch and my brother, I don't know, somewhere else. And uh, my dad came down in a fury. He grabbed me by my, my belt, right? One arm up here, grabbed my brother by the other and then walked upstairs like this. It was like the feels like it was the strongest thing anyone's ever done in the world, but 
Yeah, something like that. Uh, and it was, that, was, that was a moment that scarred into my, my memory because he put me in my room, put my brother in his, told us to knock it off, and we had to sit there for a while. Um, and it worked because I had the appropriate fear of my father, right? Like he was immensely powerful compared to six or seven-year-old me uh, in that particular space. But, my hope, but I, and for me, I have this with my father as well, and I know some of you don't, so it's a harder, it's a harder imagery. But to a five-year-old, the father is both immensely powerful compared to them and hopefully gentle and loving as well. That our hope that as we, as we raise our kids, we're able to be both of those things. I know more than you. I'm more powerful than you are. I have more experience than you do. And I want to use that to guide you into the best life I can find. And sometimes that requires discipline, you know, sometimes even grabbing you by your belt. Uh, and sometimes it, it, it can require many different things. A father corrects because he wants what's best for his children. He guides them in order that they might grow up to be flourishing adults. Our hope is, as parents, that our rules aren't just arbitrary for arbitrary's sake. When, 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 when I teach my girls, I tell, you, I, I tell them not to lie because I know that if they, they develop a habit to lie, it's not going to be good for them in the long term. Tell them to be generous because it's a better posture to be. To speak, to try to, and imperfectly, to be fair, to try to speak well to people, to be kind, all of those things. Because I know that if we develop them into that space, they're going to flourish in the long run. A father corrects because he wants the best for children. He guides them in order that they might grow up to be flourishing adults. He also gives them opportunity for growth so that they can learn. There are times where I help my kids do what they need to do, and there are other times where I'm saying, hey, you've got to tie your shoes on your own today. Well, it's hard, I know, but you're not going to learn unless you do it. God functions in the same way. Where we start the story matters. How we relate, read the Bible matters, and how we understand God matters both in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together. So hold on to those thoughts, because I want to show you something else as well. To do that, let's just read the beginning of this story again. Genesis 2.4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they, and when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared in the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For, God, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord, formed, Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and care for it. Now, we'll talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil next week. Uh, but, what, but I think something really beautiful is shown to us there. Genesis 2 has shown us the intimacy of God, his closeness to us. But there's another fundamental aspect of God I want us to see in this story. So the story starts with one detail. No shrub has yet appeared, no plant had sprung up because there hadn't been rain. Now, we talked about how strange that is compared with one. But what image does that create in your mind? For me, it creates this idea. Uh, it actually brings my, my mind to like the images from the Mars rover because I'm a nerd. So there's that, right? Like images like this. So when I think no shrub has appeared on the ground, there's actually one of the, one of the things we've landed on Mars. Mars is completely habit, inhabited by robots, by the way, which is kind of cool. 
Uh, there's a nerd joke no one liked. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But when I have images of this Genesis 2 story, this is what I see. Like, there's no shrub on the, there's no water. It's some rocks, some dust. It looks like that for me. Picture a wasteland, nothing living at all. So it's in this place, a lifeless place, that God forms Adam. But then we get another strange detail, right? And maybe you, maybe you haven't considered how weird this is before, right? That God forms Adam from what? From dust, which is, one, a really weird thing to do in general and a weird substance to use to make something, right? This, this should, in your mind, trigger that where are the elephants in the room? Here's one. For two reasons. One, dust is a strange creation tool. We just talked about that. But also, in Genesis 1, does God need anything to create anything else? No. Right? In Genesis 1, he speaks, and it is. But for some reason, when he creates humans, he, has, he uses something. Why? Does he, why does God need dust? Does he even need dust or is something else being communicated here? See, I think something really beautiful is happening. Like I said earlier, that part of this story shows us something fundamental about who God is. And so what we have in this story is that we have a wasteland, void of life. And dust, which is essentially worthless, Right? Nothing grows in dust. It's a nuisance, especially if you lived in Israel in which there can be dust storms from time to time. If you, have any of you ever been out on like the beach on a windy day? It's miserable, isn't it? Like, dust is awful in that space. Dust gets in your nose, your eyes, your mouth, everything. It's worse in Israel, which is where these people would be reading that. Dust is essentially worthless. Nothing grows out of it. You can't build anything out of it. It's dead. It's nothing. It's meaningless. But what we see in this picture is that God takes what is dead and makes it into something. He takes what's dead and breathes life into it. And then goes even one step further. God takes the worthless dust, gives it life. He makes Adam. Then he takes Adam to a garden and says, this is yours. You rule over it. You cultivate it. You subdue it. Take it and make it into something even more beautiful. God gives Adam, who was nothing only minutes earlier, was dust, worthlessness. He gives him authority to rule. See, God doesn't just want what is dead to have life. He gives it worth, dignity, and authority as well. Adam didn't earn it. He didn't prove himself. It was inherent in what God created him to be. Now, that's interesting in and of itself, but there's even more. Because this idea, this idea of God taking what is dead, breathing life into it, and then giving it a task or an authority is not a one-off in Genesis. Next week, we'll tackle Genesis 3, the story of the fall. Adam had been given authority, and he fails. And so sin and death enter the world. We'll spend more time on that next week, what we said. But the end of that particular story, right away we see this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed you are above all the livestock and the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Immediately after the fall, we see the promise of Jesus given. God doesn't wipe Adam and Eve out. He invites them into this renewal process. They were dead in their sin and yet from that death, new life comes and a new mission, and a new task, and a new authority. But it's not even, a, even unique just to the creation and fall story. 
If you fast forward to chapter 6 in Genesis, we don't even have to go very far. We have the story of Noah. Now, maybe you know that story. A flood comes. Death. But then the backside of that story in Genesis 8, then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that's with you, the birds, of the birds, animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be, and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Out of death, out of the flood comes new life. And actually the same mandate given to Adam is given to Noah as well. Out of death comes new life with a new charge and authority to change the world. But it doesn't end there either. You can fast forward to chapter 15. Now we have a story about a guy named Abraham. Abram at this point. 15.2, but Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son of your own flesh, and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The nation of Israel begins with this guy named Abraham. We're going to look at his story later this year. But God promises Abraham a son. He has none and that matters. Because it doesn't say it in this particular passage, but Abraham is extremely old. And so is his wife Sarah. And they're childless. Both too old to have children in the way that we understand it. We estimate that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. It's an old dude, right? We also est or we know that Abraham was 100 years old. The Bible tells us that. We estimate Sarah because we're not 100% sure, but she's somewhere between 90 and 91 years old when she has Isaac. I don't know. I've never seen a 90-year-old have a child, but that's the case in Sarah's case. <clears throat> what is dead? Out of that comes new life and authority to change the world because God says, I will bless you and you will bless people around me. But it keeps going. You fast forward to Exodus. Israel is dead in Egypt. They're slaves, but God frees them and takes them to the promised land and tells them to rule over the promised land. Very similar to the creation story in that way. God charges Israel to essentially restore Eden, which is actually beautiful. I've said it here before. If you ever read the promises that God gives to Israel at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, if you follow me, you'll have rain and season. You'll never lose a war. You're going to greatly increase in number. You're going to be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. All of those things essentially recreate Eden in Israel. Out of death, out of slavery comes life and new authority and new charge to change the world. You can see a theme here, because we can keep going through the Old Testament. We've already skipped over Joseph, but it happens in that story. The book of Judges is filled with it, Nehemiah, Daniel. But my guess is many of you have already, already know where I'm going to go with this. Paul's not very subtle about it at all. In Ephesians 2, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. What we see in Genesis 2 is this, is this mode of, one, we see a contrast to the, the great and powerful God of Genesis 1, and we get this intimate, caring God. But then we also get, one, get God who shows us 
what his purposes are, which is to bring life from death and then give mission and authority, which happens over and over and over and over and over again through Scripture all the way to Jesus, in which he says, while you were still sinners, while you were dead in your sins, I will come to you, give you new life, and then a new charge and authority to then go bless the rest of the world. Where we start the story matters so much because it, one, helps us understand who we are. We've seen that through this thing, that God created us with, with inherent value and authority, that we, that we don't have to earn that or try to search for it. We saw that over the last couple of weeks. We saw how big and powerful God is in the midst of all that, and then we saw how much he cares for each of us individually this week which gives us an image of God as Father, as someone who is trying to encourage us to flourish in these different kinds of ways. And we also get an image of God here at the beginning of our story as someone who is constantly and repeatedly trying to bring life into the dead areas of our lives. We can use it on the big meta scale like we talk about in Genesis 1 or with Noah or with Abraham or with the Exodus or with Jesus as a, in that kind of way. But the same thing we see applied to our individual lives over and over and over again throughout Scripture. See, each of us, no matter what, where we are, have areas in which we just don't do the things we want to do, right? In which we know the things we're doing are hurting ourselves or other people. Areas that you could consider to be dead, right? I know I do. There are things in my life that I wish I could be better. I wish, I wish that, my, that it was easier for me to not like have a like a, a mini temper, right? When things annoy me to have them shoot out like that, I wish I was more patient in that way. But I'm not. It's an area that I have to grow in, and I'm hopefully a little better. I'm a little better. I'm good. That's, I got a nod. That, that matters a lot. But I still got a long ways to go. And there are times in which I, I fail, and I'm like, God, oh, that sucks. Wish I could have done better. Wish that part of me wasn't dead but then we go back to these stories that we started here in Genesis 1, and that's why where we start the story matters. Because we realize in those moments, I can view it in one of two ways. Either I'm horrible, and I need to do something to be less horrible, like to be made right again and have value again. Or we can start the story where God starts the story and says, you, I am valuable and I have done bad things. Things that have hurt me or other people. But the whole mission of God is to take those areas in which I have failed and bring new life to them again. Is to learn and to grow and take another step towards something better. At Harbor Life here, we talk about it all the time, that our goal is to take our one more step in our discipleship journey. That the mission of faith is not to pretend like we're all perfect. We know we're not. We have a ton. Each week when we come up here, we share stories of areas in which we haven't been our best. And that's real and authentic, and we all have those. And so our goal is not to try to find this place where we are just holier than thou, but to admit that we're not, yet we're valuable and want to be a little bit better tomorrow than we were today. That's, the, that's, the, that's the, one of the points at the beginning of Scripture itself, is that our faith journeys are built around this idea of bringing life back to death about God guiding us into a space in which we can do a little bit better tomorrow than we did today. And so that's what I want your takeaway to be this morning, is to spend a little bit of time reflecting on the first two chapters of Genesis and what they're communicating about who God is, both 
powerfully and intimately, but what he desires for you, how he can correct you into those spaces, and the areas in your life in which you would like to see what is dead come alive again. Because what we see throughout Scripture is that when people take seriously the areas in which God gives life, the world changes. Abraham believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness, and Isaac is born, and Israel is created, the nation of Israel, which then is where Jesus comes from, and the, world, the trajectory of human history changes. We see that in our lives, too. The alcoholic who decides to stop drinking takes a step in that particular path to be a little better tomorrow than he was today. But not only does he do better for himself, the best person to help someone else through that is someone who's already gone through it. Those moments in which life comes back to death can change the trajectory for someone else as well. So this week, my encouragement to you is to reflect on what those spaces might be. What areas in your life are dead and you want God to breathe new life into them? And then what can you do to use that to make an impact on everyone else as well? Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize that, that this morning that we come in as broken, busted up people, that there are areas in our life that are dead, that aren't the way that we want them to be. And so God, we pray for your wisdom in the midst of that to just see, uh, to, see, to see ourselves through your eyes as beloved, valuable children of God. That, that Genesis, in Genesis 2, we see that in your immense power, you, you don't just create humanity. You form us. We see throughout the Psalms that I knew you and formed you in your mother's womb, that it's the same word and imagery of this intentional kind of creation, that each of us have value and significance and meaning because you made us to have it. And because of that value and significance and, and that, that you, we matter to you, you desire to see us flourish. And so, Lord, may we be people who can see you as a good father, as someone who corrects when we need correcting. We may not like that, but that your desire for us is to see us flourish in the kind of life you created us to have. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are struggling to see themselves as valuable or just seeing themselves as, the, as their dead parts as the, the areas in which they failed. God, I pray that you breathe new life into those areas of their lives, in my life, where it's the same. And may we be a kind of people that can be authentic about where we need to grow and can honestly take the next step into that growth. Amen. So we did, uh, we, we, we did all of our songs up front today. And so we're not going to sing again now, but I, I, we're just going to leave with that reflection in. But I do want to leave you with a blessing as well. So if you could stand for the blessing, uh, that would be great. Scripture tells us over and over and over again that God loves you and desires the best for you. That he wants to bring life to the dead areas of your life. So go with his blessing today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he turn his face towards you and shine on you. May he give you the ability to see yourself through his eyes as a beloved child of God with value and significance. And may he encourage you to allow him to breathe life into the areas of your life that are dead. Go with his peace. Amen.